Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Hope you guys are doing good. Today, I have an interview with a new friend of mine, Peter Limberg. Peter is a philosopher and embodies his philosophy. And that's about as far as I'm going to go in trying to de- describe Peter. But I will tell you that I met him online. He is the steward of what he has named the Stoa, which is a Stoic philosophy. It's not even a Stoic philosophy place. It's basically a campfire where we can talk about important shit and really appreciate what he's doing over there. That's how we've connected. So he's really smart. He's got some really nice ways of thinking and the conversation that I'm going to drop you into starts with Peter being very truthful about how he's feeling, which I really appreciate. And that really sets the tone for this, um, speaking our truth. So if you guys like this podcast and want more content like this, leave a review, please. I need those right now. That helps the podcast get out. Um, as well, consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate the donations. And without further ado, here's some music and my conversation with Peter Lindbergh. Just kind of my inquiries about you and your background and what you're doing at the STOA is kind of what I 
thought was interesting for the podcast. So maybe we just jump right in. Sure. And I will, I will say, um, and I think this would be good to include in the podcast is that I, I'm resistant, uh, to be here right now. Um, cause I don't want to be in, uh, in that traditional podcast mode. I don't want to be in that place of, let's see, like an epistemic authority and, you know, just like, Oh, listen to me. You know, I, I know everything. So I want to like feel re- like I, I feel resistance on that frame. And I don't know how you're even going to structure this podcast. Maybe you don't even have that frame, but when I feel into the kind of like the traditional podcast format, I feel that. And I want to say no to that. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I guess what I would say to that is that, you know, a couple of, um, people that have been on the show recently, namely Rich Bartlett and Sarah Ness, um, cool. Are kind of just talking about just the power of our own, like sharing what is just real for us and what's going on. And as well as even just like what Jack Murphy's talking about of having some kind of like higher trust, higher bandwidth conversations that aren't based in uh, teacherly authority or epistemological authority, um, I think is something that I'm definitely trying to curate on the podcast just in general and in my life. So I uh, super respect your uh, resistance there and I want to respect that. And I definitely want this to be as totally conversational and, um, you know, we, this can be totally whatever we want it to be. And right. I, so what's coming, what's coming up right there. Um, and I've been talking about this, I think at the STOA um, and then with my daily journals is that this feeling of tomorrow um it's like you know tomorrow is like a concept right and then if you actually feel that concept the felt sense of that concept that has died for me tomorrow has died for me well and when if there's no tomorrow then you know the logic dictates there's no today or no yesterday and if you're kind of living like there's no tomorrow and this actually got uh, this this idea was put on my radar by someone in on on Facebook saying about like procrastination, like means putting things off for tomorrow. But if there's the concept that tomorrow doesn't exist, then it's sort of like an anti-crastination occurs. And it's interesting. And that came up because if you live like there, there's a tomorrow, then you have all these hopes and fears about your projects, like with this podcast, uh, this podcast or things you write or whatever. Uh, and then there's like subtle, like egoic machinations. Like I want it to be a certain way. So you instrumentalize your word in order to meet that. But if you have no tomorrow, you're just talking in the now. That's a good place to be. <laughs> That's a good place to be. Yeah, it feels cool. <laughs> That's a good place to be. And I just, even as we just begin to talk, I can hear the, like the underlying, like the girders of stoicism in just like your views there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about stoicism in general. Like, um, I don't necessarily think that you have to be the uh, end-all be-all voice for what this kind of sect of philosophy is, but tell me how you like came across it and what it, um, you know, what's your 
history? What, what drew you to it and what has it done for you? Yeah. Um, so I hate talking about stoicism. <laughs> hate, hate is, um, too strong of a word, but I dislike it. Uh, why is that? Epictetus said that, uh, don't explain your philosophy, embody it. And, you know, I, I started the stoicism Toronto group here about three years ago and, um, it quickly became like the largest stoic group in the world, had a big presence. So a lot of eyes were on us and I was sort of bored, bored with it, to be honest. Um, I didn't enjoy it because the kind of wider stoic community, they, they just sort of talk about stoicism. Mm. You know, it's like, there's like, there's only so much you can talk about. And I will talk about, and I'll kind of explain the, you know, the outline for, for people who are just on being on board to the whole philosophy. But I, I feel like this preface is important for me. Um, and uh, yes, I, I got really bored. So I started this other group called the Intellectual Explorers Club, which uh, uh, afforded me to speak more on sort of my more jazzy intellectual interests. Um, I called it like being a performative agnostic method act someone else's reality tunnel as if it were true. So not only you can think what they think, but you feel what they think or feel what they feel, I should say. Um, that was a lot of fun. And that kind of gave me a presence on the internet with some of my musings on the culture war and whatnot. Um, but when this whole COVID thing happened, I said, you know what, let's combine those two things. My stoicism really came online doing in this kind of uncertain liminal state. So I said, you know, let's combine those things and then start the Stoa. And the Stoa, the Stoa Pokele is where the original Stoics with Zena gathered around and talked. And people said, hey, look, they're the Stoics. And they got, that's how they got their name. And I'm viewing the Stoa as a place that's stewarded by a Stoic, me, uh, but not necessarily to talk about Stoicism or practice Stoicism, which will happen there, but a place to cohere and dialogue about what matters most at the nice edge of this moment. Um, so given all that, <laughs> um, I, I'll, I'll give sort of, uh, if you'd like, I can give you like a one-on-one version of how I hold stoicism. Would love that. Yeah. Um, so kind of the essence of stoicism is, uh, live in accordance with nature. Uh, another way I like to frame it that I got this from Jordan Hall, even though he's not a stoic is being in right relationship with reality and how they recommend going about that is to be virtuous live in virtue. And they talk about the four cardinal virtues, just like Christianity does. Um, prudence or practical reason, uh, courage, temperance, and justice. And the, the most important one is, is practical reason, you know, prudence. And um, in, a, in a sort of like they have these sort of reasoned heuristics, I'd call them, like uh, the, the, the bedrock, uh, bedrock one is the dichotomy of control radically focus on what's in your control and don't concern yourself with what is not in your control. So there's this sort of like psychological localism happens when that occurs and other principles like uh, negative visualization, um, focus on the worst case scenario, come to terms with it, be okay with it. Uh, and then more fate, love thy fate, right? So whatever happens to you act as if you wrote that in your own life, you know, if you had God mode or whatever. <laughs> um, and so that's sort of like the kind of the skeleton, propositional skeleton of stoicism. And the delicious thing for me, um, as more of an entrepreneurial stoic or spiritual entrepreneurial, a spiritual entrepreneur in this realm, is that stoicism is a great philosophy 
to find itself in this moment to be rediscovered. And I say this because like, I think like 90% of the text Stoic literature uh, disappeared. We don't have access to it. We have access to some of the, like the modern Roman Stoics, not modern Roman Stoics, but like the, the Roman Stoics, like uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus. But most of the texts we don't have access to. And we don't really know how they practiced. Like, you know, there's some lineages like Orthodox Christianity or Buddhistic traditions where we kind of know what it looks like still. We don't know what Stoicism looks like, how it's practiced. And we can pretend we know, we can like, oh, but no, it's time to reinvent it, in my opinion. It's time to discover it, ask what it wants from us. I love that. Um, there's some things that come up for me there as you, the idea that you would ruminate on the worst possible scenario and come to terms with it. I'm a professional action sports athlete and a paraglide pilot and a highliner. And that's just something that I've actually been talking a lot about lately, especially in the midst of all of this, like looming worst case scenarios yes. is really taking a hard look at what the, um, what all the possible outcomes are. And I recently had a friend on the podcast. His name is Matt Blank. He's a base jumper and a deep thinker. And he talked about levity on the far side of tragedy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was in relation to laughing at people who die base jumping mm. pretty much, which is like a pretty dark thing, but, um, it's something, it, it's kind of a levity that base jumpers use to almost insulate them from the tragedy that surrounds them at every jump, the potential tragedy that surrounds them at every jump. And so that's just kind of like one thing that comes up for me that I see in like the culture that I live in that is mm. uh, some kind of stoic um, embodiment. And I totally agree. I love the idea that you don't like to talk about stoicism because philosophy is something that ought be embodied and not yes. just talked about. And I think that right now we are in a crisis of virtue signaling and a oh, lack of virtue. hundred um, percent. And what I like about what you just said is I noticed people who gravitated to the stoic group here in Toronto, um, or people who gravitate to stoicism in general, people from the military, people from uh, like doctors, uh, extreme sports, entrepreneurs, people who have to deal with a high level of uncertainty. And they naturally build uh, their stoic muscle, if you will, just doing what they're doing, doing their passion, right? Because you have to be stoic, at least in that area, that localized mm -hmm. area, right? So imagine your stoicism in, in that extreme sport. What was it again? It's uh, that was base jumping. Base jumping. So imagine the stoicism that you experienced during base jumping and then just globalize it to every aspect of your life. Yeah. Right. And that's why they say, uh, Pierre Hedo, that philosophy is a way of life. It's not something that we talk about yeah. or just talk about. We breathe yeah. it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that that's a really important concept. But at the same time, I think that right now we are, you know, I think that a I think that in general, people in this like big nap that we've been taking since World War II, 
where everything has been so good and the garden has been so fruitful that everyone has been uh, so relaxed that I think that some of these concepts that we're talking about are just completely and totally foreign to people. That philosophy as a practice, philosophy as a intellectual exercise to begin with is lost on people. It's, they just haven't been exposed to it. And, you know, here we are, we're talking about one small sect of philosophy that has uh, ancient roots and deep practicality, but people are completely and totally unfamiliar with even the terminology or the mental exercise, let alone the embodiment. So I think there is an importance to talking about the philosophies that we use to, to guide the principles that modify our behaviors. Because I think that most people have been watching Rick and Morty for quite a while. And um, I think they need to be exposed to the different ways of thinking and the, even the mental exercise of using cognition to determine principle. Mm. Yeah, a few things come up. Um, let me feel into the, the right thread. So uh, are you familiar with my uh, uh, work on the, the culture war? No. I can send it to you afterwards. Uh, it, the, the basic premise there is, you know, the culture war is not... Uh, um, a bipolar affair anymore like it was in the 1990s or appeared to be in the 1990s and how legacy media uh, presents it today like a left versus right uh it's what i call the multipolar war not i call it, i just took that term from international relations and, and applied it to the culture war so a multipolar war is uh, um there's multiple reality tunnels multiple philosophies in the wild politics fighting each other so it's not just left and right. It's all these like social justice warriors, alt-right, manosphere, neo-reactionaries, Black Life Matters. They all have these different kind of, you know, they have odd alliances. They're fighting each other, fighting against one another. Um, and so I, I, we dubbed that, Connor Barnes and I, uh, Culture War 2.0. And if, if you kind of look back in um, history, any time there was a, a, a multipolar world order it was always before a massive war like world mm -hmm. war one world war two they had a multi-polar uh, world order and so it kind of leads to chaos when you have that like if you have a bipolar order if it's like usa versus soviet union or if it's like pax or unipolar it's like pax britannica or pax americana there's some kind of stability mm -hmm. but if there's multipolar it's like uh oh you know danger coming up and uh i think we're there now <laughs> and so why I mentioned this is that um, we can go down that thread too, the, the danger thread, but why I mentioned this is um, my postmodern proclivities, the ability to, uh, what I said earlier, method act various reality tunnels and uh, to the point where you can pass their like ideological Turing test or just feel what they feel when they believe what they believe. I think that's a very important skill set to have. Um, and why I mention this is that a lot of people get stuck with the word philosophy, right? And like, oh, I've got to learn all these uh, uh, 
um, terms and concepts and all this mm-hmm. shit. And then there's, a, there's this own virtue signaling there with philosophers. And I feel this in the modern stoic movement. There's like a pretension. Uh, they're like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta use these words and everything. A lot of people I noticed are intimidated uh, by the word philosophy because their egos are not associated with philosophizing or the terms that they use. So I'm very comfortable with my postmodern proclivities is to use different terms like being real, <laughs> right? Like just being real. Um, and that's, and, and it's, I think it's more important to model it and allow other people to see you model it like what I'm trying to do right now. Um, so yeah, and why I mentioned all that is this, like if we want to like sell this or uh, scale it up to people who are watching Rick and Morty, and I never watched that show, but I heard it's good. Right? So I, like, I have no judgment on it. Um, but if we want to kind of like bring it to other people, then we might have to use different languages. We have to uh, um, untether our ego from these, these concepts. Uh, and then we got to talk to people in a real way. That to me is true philosophy. I think that touches on the the Rich Bartlett and the Sarah Ness, this power of authenticity in this. Um, and it, honestly, it's something that is really like relatively new in my life because I feel like for a long time, I have been, or a big part of my intellectual evolution involved like objective truth, just being like the tip of the spear and the like the the highest part of the pyramid and Mm -hmm. it led me to kind of just discredit subjective truths from people and from myself. And I think I like dissolved a big part of myself there. And there was a lot of me that was hidden because of that. And now as we, um, I think we're both like on all fronts, we're seeing that just like in our embodied experience, we can see how that's important and how just like, being vulnerable and authentic, even with ourselves, even in our journal is like a powerful tool as well as like interpersonally and even like the scientific literature that's coming out. Um, you know, Sarah Ness brought up this study that was done on this, uh, shell oil rig that hired, um, emotional intelligence and vulnerability, training for their oil rig workers and like the incidents of, of, uh, fatal accidents went down like 80% on the oil rigs. So this kind of vulnerability and subjective, um, truth is really becoming a more mainstream thing in my mind, as well as I see it externally more and more. The one thing that I want to go back to that um, you're talking about, and I, I'm not sure exactly the term that you use, a method, something where you are feeling into, like you're putting yourself in the shoes of someone else's perspective to understand what they feel with the worldview that they have. What is that? Let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. Yeah, and I threw, I recognize I threw a bunch of uh, <laughs> crazy terms out there uh, in a rapid fire way. Um, and I, ju- I just want to uh, also say that uh, I'm glad to be here now. Uh, at the beginning, um, you recall I said I didn't want to be here, but I'm glad I'm, be- I'm here. And so thank you for the invite. Yeah. Um, to answer your question about the, uh, the method acting thing. Um, method acting. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with method acting, the technique? And 
Um, I think that I've actually come across this, but I, I, the term seems new to me. Right. So it's, uh, it's like a, an acting technique uh, where if you want to really feel the character that you're playing, if you're an actor, right. Uh-huh. Then you, you kind of like uh, put yourself in the emotional reality that that actor is in or that character uh, would be in. So you kind of like, they have various techniques, I imagine, but you kind of conjure up memories of, of past times where you felt that. So you can kind of feel it when you're uh, acting uh, in that role. Um, and when I meet, I'm, I'm repurposing that for um, understanding uh, all these, what I call mimetic tribes, like, you know, these different kind of philosophies in the wild. So step one, in my opinion, actually, it could be step two. I don't know. One of the steps is... Um, having the ability to articulate their views in a way where they feel fully understood. Right. So that's step one, just on a propositional level, right. Make sure you, your map of their ideas is uh, correspondent to their map. Of what yeah, that's like, be true. that's like being able to argue the other side of the argument. Right. Exactly. Right. So having that capacity uh, is one of the steps, but then the other step is, <clears throat> actually sit and allow those propositions to sink in and feel how the world feels when you believe them to be true. Right. And you can do this exercise with social justice activists, um, uh, manosphere incels, whatever. And you actually feel certain things, right? Um, yeah, this is like going further than just being able to play devil's advocate, but actually like beginning to embody for at least a moment, the ideology that you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Um, and then if you can do that, then you can speak to them, really speak to them, not just pretend to speak with them. Um, and so I think that is a really important, uh, set to have, especially in this liminal space. Wow. Yeah. My stomach's grumbling right now, so I might mute myself every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is such a powerful tool. And I think that it's um, been like hinted at in our discourse of like being able to like open-mindedness is being able to like consider the other point of view. And people tend to do it just as far as they can, like find a crack in it to argue against it. And it's like this, mm. it's a it's a combat technique as opposed to some kind of way to have a deeper understanding and a broader view and a sympathetic, um, a sympathetic discourse between someone else who has a different way of, of thinking. And I, it just brings me to something that I've been just ruminating on over and over and over so much lately is just the idea of fighting. Just the reality that I see that is not people using their intelligence and their cognition and their um, words to like move forward but merely as a way to weaponize their own opinions at another. Mm -hmm. It is the libtard or, you know, the libtards versus the Trump supporters. It's like, there is none of this embodied empathetic method acting, which 
experientially, we know method acting to be something that is so viscerally powerful. Like when you watch the movie Joker and you see Joaquin Phoenix, who is like become someone else, it's like there's something like eerie about it. There's something like so powerful and almost like terrifying that is like this person has has like sat with another reality in a way for so long and in such a profound way that it like has literally changed them. Mm -hmm. And we've heard stories from Hollywood who have like, you know, stories of like, um, of Jim Carrey when he's like, uh, there's that movie where he played that other comedian and Andy Kaufman, Andy Kaufman. And the, story goes that like during the entire production he never came out of character and it was like almost like detrimental to like a number of his relationships because he was like so embodied in this other person's reality that he like became them so we know experientially that this kind of being with another person's emotional reality or their or you know, not just walking in their shoes per se, but actually like kind of like trying to like look through their eyes and see the world through their lenses and try to feel what they would feel if, if that were the case, if they had that ideology and those emotions and those experiences, we know this to be a really powerful, powerful thing. And yet we, I find us to be absolutely just mired in conflict without resolution no desire to have any kind of resolution only conflict for the addiction of conflict right um i am optimistic now uh and uh you know i, I did an analysis on a lot of this on that uh culture war mimetic tribes and culture war 2.0 white paper that i mentioned um Maybe I can come back and chat about it. Uh, but I was thinking about that. Like I, I never really put this connection together, but when I was writing that white paper and we had this spreadsheet of like 32 different reality tunnels, like tribes. Um, and you know, when I've, I've, I tried my best to feel into each of them and I did have a, a, a mini breakdown writing that paper, like a mental breakdown. Um, what helped me out of it was, uh, a Robert Anton Wilson, uh, he's a mystical agnostic and it's like, uh, I view it sort of like as a healthy postmodernism, being able to sit in that cognitive liminal state without, uh, uh, running into a certain narrative out of fear. Um, but I also, um, just what just came to mind right now when you were talking is how potentially my stoicism afforded me the ability to do that without completely losing my mind, or maybe I did lose my mind. I don't know, but like, you know, like uh, the, has some semblance of sanity, right? Like, uh, and, uh, there's, uh, uh, that the process of stoicism, if you follow the stoic algorithm, if you will, uh, it naturally leads to what uh, acceptance commitment therapy calls, uh, cognitive diffusion. So your thoughts and your emotions, uh, get separated. Because I think a lot of problem is, you know, the trigger words, right? And every medic tribe has sacred values that trigger them, whether on their left or the right. So everyone's getting triggered. Um, because uh, my read is that their emotional reality is so enmeshed with their propositional reality. And that's why Stoics are not really in the culture war. I didn't even include them on the, uh, the original mimetic tribe list is because uh, the Stoics have the capacity just to kind of create distance between the two. That's one of the pillars, right? Yeah. 
And what my, my kind of like criticism, I guess, I don't know if it's criticism on the, the modern stoic movement, like my kind of, I'm like the black sheep of the community a little bit, <laughs> but like uh, out of the, I'm the meta weirdo, but like uh, my, my, I guess what I don't resonate with the modern stoic community is that I just feel like they stay there. Right. They just kind of create that distance between their thoughts and then their emotion and they stay there. But I like the idea of turning around, you know, and then like now that you have that ability, turn around and build a relationship with each one of those emotional realities. Mm. Right. And if you could build a good relationship with fear, love, all that type of stuff and view each emotional state as a friend trying to give you advice, but having the prudence to recognize that even though they're a friend, they don't always give the best advice. Uh -huh. You can have a relationship with each one of those emotional states, then good shit can happen. Hmm. And so this is why I feel really called to uh, talk about stoicism, I guess, or maybe embody it publicly um, where I didn't before because we're living in this uh, ever since COVID happened, uh, tomorrow has died, even though maybe it hasn't died for everyone. It, it kind of died because no one knows what tomorrow will bring right now. Mm -hmm. We're living in this radically uncertain state. Uh, and then I think it's going to keep getting more liminal. <laughs> it's going to keep getting more crazy. Um, how can you set a, a proper goal in this, in this state, you know, like confidently, like a smart goal, how can you set one? Um, and so I feel called to be stoic publicly in this moment, hence the stoa. Yeah. I think that the things that you're talking about from like a psychological standpoint are just really super healthy and they, the idea that you would separate your emotions and your thoughts, you would separate your identity from your emotions and your thoughts, all of these things is just a really healthy groundwork, a framework to be able to go through life that is in its very nature liminal, in its very nature uncertain, like, um, which kind of makes me think, you know, like, the uncertainty has really come into like front and center view, but the reality of uncertainty has always been there. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It has never, it, it, it has never been anything else than uncertain. Like we're all, you know, you talk about tomorrow has ceased to exist for you now, but it, the certainty of tomorrow has always been some kind of illusion, some kind of construct. Yeah. And that's really well put. Um, yeah, it's just sort of like this, this is a state, this crisis is an opportunity to wake up to that reality. It really is. It really is. Um, the other night I did, um, Shit's getting deep now. <laughs> you know? seriously. No, seriously. The other night I, um, I had been given this, uh, from a really trusted friend, I had been given this, this changa, this activated DMT. And it just kind of like, I just had it for months and months and months. And I just like had never really like had the calling to, uh, to kind of go on that 
journey. But the other night it was just like, it called me. I was out camping by myself on a mountain and it just like kind of called to me. And the thing that you said about where the Stoics stop at separating their emotions from their thoughts, where you want to take it a step further by turning around and build relationship with those emotions is was like strangely reminiscent of this experience that I had this like really profound feeling that I was like kind of transported to this plane of consciousness where I could see that my own perspective had been knocked loose and had like floated around 180 so that my own consciousness could then turn around and see consciousness as a diffuse property that then the following profound realization was that everything is relational. Like I only exist in relationship to the tree right there and my girlfriend. And as you talk about how the, you know, building these relationships with different parts of yourself, it reminds me of the, the rich Bartlett, the innermost circle mm. of uh, of of coming into relationship with each part of yourself. Yeah, 100%. And it's like being in right relationship with each part of yourself because we're always in relationship, but, you know, the relationship could be pathological. Um, and, 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 <laughs> all and, too and, often, all too often. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's sort of like, uh, uh, let's go back to the, the bedrock of stoicism, you mm-hmm. know, being in right relationship with reality. Boom, right? And then, and then you got to be in right relationship with everything else. If you're in right relationship with reality, yeah. that's why it's like, you know, when you're doing your, your, uh, your, your extreme sports, it's like you're, you're in right relationship. If you're, if you're not going to die with it, you're going to be in right relationship with reality while you're doing it. Right. Absolutely. But it's like, it, again, like just globalize that to every aspect of your life. Absolutely. That is philosophy. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you say that uh, being in right relationship with reality, or the first thing that you said was living uh, within relationship with nature or being living in, in accordance with nature. That's how the yes. Stoics originally worded it. Okay, yeah. perfect. And that my, uh, my girlfriend is an Ayurvedic practitioner and Ayurveda is essentially living in, in, in right relationship with nature, the, the rhythms of your body, the rhythms of the seasons, the, the seasonal foods, all these different things. And, um, there's like this, uh, you know, this the Zen idea that the truth is actually this like unnameable. It's like this unnameable. You can't even, you can't name it. You can only say what it isn't, or you can only like point to it. Right. And so right. your example of what the Stoics say, and then a slight variation is what Greenhall says. And then like a variation is what is what Ayurveda says about it. And then my own personal anecdote is like, like as I do extreme sports, like in a paraglider, I'm flying deep in the mountains. Like if I just have some illusory concept that doesn't actually map onto reality, like my life is literally in danger. Like I I die from that kind of shit. So being in right relationship with reality is like, I feel like that is a, that is pretty close to pointing at like the ultimate truth, like the, the right relationship to, to reality. Right. And yeah, yeah go ahead. 
Yeah, it's um, what's coming up right there, like, you know, the finger uh, in the moon type metaphor that you just kind of like gesture towards. Um, yeah, and I feel that too. And I was baptized as a, a Orthodox Christian and uh, Orthodox Christianity, um, they're, uh, they're panentheistic. Uh, so there's pantheistic, which is like reality is God and panentheistic is reality is um, God is reality and outside of reality, right? And so when I was baptized in that religion and uh, was brought up, I wasn't really brought up in it, but I was like, you know, my babushka and my grandma, you know, like there was uh, um, a sense that I was always swimming in reality. Mm-hmm. Right. And their goal, Orthodox Christianity is theosis, unification with God. Right. Which is very similar uh, with Stoicism, like becoming right relationship with reality. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like kind of recognizing the intimacy there with reality, with God or wherever kind of metaphysics you want to use. And again, my postmodern proclivities allows me to kind of run with both depending who I talk to. Uh-huh. Um, and, and one thing I think is so critical and, and Jordan Peterson talks about this too, is uh, truthfulness being truthful and my issue and it's not my issue i shouldn't say this with i guess more accurate to say my annoyance with atheistic types especially the new atheist types and a lot of the modern stoic movement they're all new atheists sort of larping as stoics <laughs> that's 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 my uncharitable i'll throw some shade out there so i get some heat from it uh and, and see how that goes that's my un- uncharitable interpretation of a lot of them and what oh I find- my god hold on i just have to say it again they are new atheists larping as stoics that's just too good man Shit. i hope you did i kind of didn't want you to repeat it because i just wanted to like disappear now that's gonna be like the tag the title of the, the i'm gonna make a meme out of it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. all right yeah, it's meant to be um but it's do it there's uh even though i i confess uh there's an uncharitable element there and that uncharitableness is coming from an annoyance i have um, so I'll, I'll gladly take the heat and hopefully some productive conversations will emerge from this. But, the why I brought that up is that what I find a lot of people in the atheistic community, especially the new atheist communities, they are really, uh, um, almost like obsessed with truth, right? This concept of truth and, uh, the way I hold how they hold it to be a good performative agnostic here is the, the, what philosophers call the correspondence theory of truth. So you have models of reality, and if your models of reality map over and are accurate to reality, then you arrive at the truth. And the best way to do that is the scientific method. Uh, make sure the study is replicated, and you can memorize it in institutions and pass multiple choice tests and whatnot. Right. Um, so that that's sort of like the truth. Uh, that's a little different than truthfulness. What someone like Peterson's talking about. Truthfulness is the constant act of mapping your words to what you believe to be true in the moment. That includes your thoughts, includes your emotional reality. Uh, you know, and then I started this whole thing being truthful, right? Like I didn't want to be here. And that was, that was the truthful thing. And I said it, uh, and then I, I could tell maybe you, you felt a little bit, Ooh, who the fuck is this guy? And then, with, <laughs> and then it kind of led, led into the delicious conversation it did. Uh, but it felt real. Right. And, and that is, even though I, I, I think the truth and that correspondence theory of truth is important. Like I'm not disabusing that. I love science. You know, like I think science is important, but, um, what I'm talking to, what talking about what my jam is, what I think, uh, people really have to ground themselves in is this truthfulness muscle because that truthfulness muscle keeps you loyal, mm-hmm. right? Keeps you like, keeps you loyal with reality, keeps you in right relationship with reality. Cause then when you get that egoic machinations start emerging, then you're going to bullshit. You're going to lie. You're going to try to engineer shit. 
But when you're truthful, you're just in the moment, just saying whatever wants to be said. Uh-huh. And um, that is how I think one maintains right relationship with reality. Mm. Yeah, it sounds to me like there's, it's almost, it's almost synonymous with the vulnerability of like just speaking what is actually real for you in the moment. Right. And that's like a kind of the, the parallel that comes up for me there. And I love that idea. I think there's also, um, there's like a parallel virtue that runs along with that. That is humility. That is like that, the knowingness of the, the egoic machinations that you're talking about. These like mechanisms that arise to, posture to position to uh, like the game theoretical part of our nature however conditioned that is um yeah Yeah, go ahead yeah and all these like kind of like um (laughs) i'll be i'll continue my uh, uncharitableness like all these (laughs) sort of like intellectual nerds um where they're just uh there's a feeling if you kind of sink into it there's like a feeling of knowingness Right? There's a feeling of knowingness and there's a certain quality to knowingness and there's a certain quality to unknowingness. And if you really ground yourself in that truthfulness muscle, you can confidently be live in that unknowingness. And I think that's important because we don't know shit right now. It's like Socrates this is going back to Socrates. You know, like the only thing I know is I know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important, honestly, like I think that the, the, the truthfulness versus true delineation i think i'll just make here quickly for those who aren't familiar with it i think that it's like if you are lost driving and you stop and you ask someone for directions if they misunderstand you or if they honestly don't know but they give you their best interpretation of the directions that you're asking for. And they say, yeah, just take your right there. And then your second left and you'll, you'll see it. They could be wrong, objectively wrong, but could be being truthful. They could be saying what they genuinely think is true. Right. Versus the actual directions being true. And you can be both true and truthful simultaneously, but the this idea of truthfulness as a muscle as a practice of vulnerability that is something that honestly i i feel like i'm a beginner at and i'm practicing it um i'm practicing it just like as much as i can and had a a beautiful uh reaction yesterday as I had an interaction with my friend who I literally backspaced me giving advice and I just told her how I was feeling and she just like melted. And, um, you know, this idea of vulnerability and our own truthfulness, I really feel is at, it is a cornerstone of this mimetic war that you're talking about. I think that in the culture war, in the mimetic war, there is so much posturing and bullshit that is this pretending of knowing, this regurgitation of someone else who they thought had authority. So they just regurgitate the authority. But in reality, there's no knowing, there's no humility, there's no, you know, there's no method acting that has gone into the other side of it. And it's just this, this back and forth warfare 
based in some kind of addiction for warfare. And I think there's another element that is almost the the disillusionment that through their own knowingness, air quotes, knowingness or certainty, they can somehow dispel the uncertainty and the liminality of life itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's like arrogance. There is this, like there's everyone is like putting on this mask. Right. And Sarah Ness and I talked about what that looks like in leadership because um, I don't know if you saw Eric Weinstein, um, his talk with Daniel Schmachtenberger, but, um, or with that, it's on Joe Rogan. And, and Eric says that, that the, the, the responsible speech that needs to be made by world leaders right now is, I am so sorry. I, I just need to apologize to everyone. I didn't prepare for this in accordance with the academic papers. And I, you know, I, I didn't take the necessary precautions and we're all going to pay for that. So I need your mm -hmm. apologies. I'm going to resign immediately and I'm going to hand it over to someone who's in a blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that all of our leaders have to put on this mask that pretends that they're infallible, that they did everything right, that they cannot admit any mistakes. And what I talked about with Sarah Ness is that there's this negative feedback loop that the people, the citizens are not prepared to hear a vulnerable, truthful, mistake ridden speech from a world leader. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is, uh, I drew the parallel to our medical system where the patients are looking for a pill for an ill and the doctors get stuck in this loop. So, the doctors are then like, they're up against a wall to tell their patients that, no, you're going to need to stop drinking Coca-Cola and stop doing this. You're going to need to walk eight miles a day. You're going to need to like uh, leave yeah, your yeah. friend's group. You're going to need to get a new job. You have to move. You have to, like the list of holistic realities that need to go into having such a physical transformation as is necessary so often here in our modern world. It's like, we, I think in some ways, stoicism really lends itself to being able to like pull off your mask, be real with what is happening in you so that you can even begin to comprehend the truthfulness that could come down the hill from right. someone above you in some kind of any kind of hierarchy, really, because I feel like yeah. we have lost our ability to, to, hear from authority that they have made a mistake, that they don't know what's going on, that they're not sure what to do. Yes. We're like allergic to the uncertainty, Peter. Yeah. Like I, I, what I really liked what you said is um, that metaphor uh, you use about the map. Uh, someone comes with direction. That's yeah. perfect. Cause you know, the map territory thing and you're hundred percent right. It's like someone could be really truthful, but they're, they got it wrong. Right. Uh, and that's why you kind of need everyone to be truthful because that is when the truth will come out. The truth will be summoned yes. in a way, right? If everyone starts opening up their eyes and just kind of risks being truthful with the blind man and the elephant, then the eyes start opening up and then we can see the elephant collectively, but we have to talk to each other truthfully. And, uh, for some reason, Trump is coming to mind because there is, an odd authenticity with, uh, he's oddly authentic in a way yeah. because it's like, he's the king of bullshit, 
but he bullshits in such a way where it's kind of like he winks at you at the same time. Like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm bullshitting and I know, you know, right. Yeah. And then there's like this feeling, you feel him, right? he's really authentic there. Um, and so I do think he got elected for a reason because I think people felt that authenticity. And I think that could be a good step towards leaders who are as authentic as that, but truthful uh-huh. at the same time. So I think uh-huh. there's a hunger here. And I think Trump is just sort of maybe a step towards that direction to be yeah. maximally charitable. <laughs> yeah. And that brings up a couple of things for me that I've been thinking about lately. And Eric Weinstein, again, uh, brought up this amazing point that he uh, years ago wrote this article. I think he refers to it as KFAB. And it's this idea that like in professional wrestling, like, in professional wrestling, the outcomes are known before the match starts. But like the death rate of the wrestlers is like very real. Like these guys are like getting broken collarbones and scapulas at every match. And like all these, like there is a real element to it. But in general, the entire thing is a fabrication, right? Mm -hmm. And we are hopefully, fingers crossed, we are moments away from our political structures being seen for what they are, where the, there are real elements to it, but the framework itself, the rivalry, the outcomes are for the most part fabricated. Right. And he talks about, I don't know if you've ever seen the clip, but Donald Trump has literally been involved in professional wrestling. Like, yeah, oh yeah, I saw it, yeah. Right? He had this match with Vince McMahon, who is the founder of the WWE. And Weinstein, like, talks about how powerful Donald Trump is because he intuits, he intuits professional wrestling. And he intuits this, this underlying thing that is that goes back to like Vince McMahon basically in the history of the WWE they basically got pulled into Congress because they were about to face this huge spike in taxes because they were being um, they were being like they were falling into the category of sports And sports has a whole nother tax bracket that they have to pay into. And Vince McMahon goes in to the uh, congressional hearing and he basically pulls the mask off the whole thing. And he says that the entire thing is made up, which at the time it was like, this was like a trade secret. And he went in there and said, this entire thing is made up. We are not sports. You cannot tax us like this. And what happened to professional wrestling? Did the whole thing disintegrate? No, it didn't fucking disintegrate at all. It like, if, if nothing else, it got more popular. And so this for me is, a something, is something that I, I'm not sure actually how to feel about this. I, it's something that I've, that I've intuited for a long time that people in general kind of know that the whole thing is made up and that what we're doing on the internet seems to be um, something that we are like talking about totally different things. And no matter how um, 
concretely we dispel some of the myths that are in the the gated institutional narrative no matter how like uh victorious we are in dispelling some of those myths the gated institutional narrative does not respond at all mm. it's like we know that the wrestling is fake but the that the wrestling doesn't stop it doesn't change it at all and it doesn't stop people from watching or listening or being a fan or any of this stuff so um I'll say this uh, uh, as closing thoughts because I have to eat something. I'm so hungry. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that. So a couple things came up, like the transparent bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe when bullshit becomes transparent is is an opening, an existential opening there. And and I'm not too worried about the institutional gatekeepers. Um, John Ravakey said something when he came to the Stoa. It's like, we got to steal the culture, right? And it being a good thief, it's like, you just take, you know, why play a game that's corrupt, right? Let them do what they want. Let's play our own game. And I think we're in a moment, an opportunity here um, to go back to truthfulness. And I mentioned this previously about this, uh, the word apocalypse, a lot of people talk about apocalypse means as on the, on the internet and the etymology of apocalypse is to disclose, reveal, uncover. Uh, the, on, the only way we can do that is if we become truthful, if we speak our truth, if we lie, um, bullshit, you know, keep the narrative existing based off fear or the multiple narratives, if we run into them. Uh, uh, that's, that's, that's inspired by fear. Then, you know, we're going to compromise our truthfulness. But if we really want that collective truth to emerge, we want to summon it, then it's our responsibility to be truthful in this moment, collectively, together. And I think that's the only way through this. And there's a fork, really, a heaven and hell fork to get all, you know, Christian on our ass. <laughs> and it's, it's up to us right now to be truthful and model it and inspire other people to do it. And I think that's the only way to come out of this on the, on a positive, on the positive side. I love that, Peter. I think that's a great closing thought. Really appreciate your time here. I appreciate what you're doing over at the STOA. I'm stoked to be a part of it. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk soon. All right. Bye. Okay, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We really had some good riffs going there. If you want to check out more of Peter's work, I have a link in the description below. And if you like this podcast, share, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. And consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate all the support. You guys stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. We'll see you on the next episode. So much good shit coming this week. Stoked that you're here. Talk soon. Peace. Peace.